Ignition sequence start. Three, two, one. Well, let's. Joe, do you want to switch gears now and start talking a little bit about space? Yeah, I'd love to. Okay. I mean, is that okay with you, Neil? Yeah, wherever you want to go. Great. I'm your servant. <laughs> Great. Yeah, actually, well, if we could focus on the James Webb Space Telescope, I think that's pretty sure. prominent right now. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's all that. Yeah. It is all that, and we're delighted by it. And so, um, it has the capacity to see with infrared eyes which enables you to peer deep into gas clouds that are nearby. And we expect and we have found that these gas clouds are stellar nurseries that have invented stars. Um, and that same infrared allows us to see the beginning of the universe, Yeah, wow. which is very high energy. But the expansion of the universe has cooled it down. So over the last 14 billion years, those early stages are lend themselves well to infrared cameras. The fascinating thing about James Webb is it sees the birth of stars nearby and the birth of galaxies at the beginning of the universe. Yeah. Well, and everything in between. Right. I, I was curious if you knew anything about the, the more new publication that was talking about the redshift of some of these galaxies that maybe, or just went, went against the idea of like the Big Bang or it didn't quite make sense that we were seeing such... Great redshift well, at these. Yeah, the urge for the papers to say the Big, Big Bang doesn't work anymore is very high. Right. So just anytime they say that, just buffer it <laughs> okay. yeah. with your own. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, it turns out at the beginning of the universe, you have this, this pool of matter and energy. And eventually, as it expands and cools, the energy decouples from the matter, and it can spread across the universe. Mm -hmm. From that point to the point of the first stars, which presumably are born inside of galaxies. From that point to then, there were no stars. Yeah. So we call it the dark ages. Okay. No stars, no galaxies. Right. We call it the dark ages. Turns out, James Webb found five galaxies in the dark ages. And so who ordered that, right? <laughs> yeah. So now the press tried to make it sound like we have to redo the Big Bang, but that's not necessary because the... Uh, we had many tools available to us um, to explain it, one of which was maybe they're not ordinary galaxies because we put the galaxies there if they're galaxies we know about and then apply the parameters. Hmm. But if there's some form of galaxy that we don't know about, then bring it on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, last episode, and I say last episode, we haven't, put it out yet, but the last time we were talking, which is just earlier this week, we did an episode on dark energy in the expansion of the universe. And so that was pretty prevalent when we were talking about, like, there are kind of two major teams right now. There's, uh, I mean, we can study the cosmic microwave background radiation, and then we can study, like, the stellar nuclear explosions or whatever. And we can use those to try to determine the expansion of the universe and, like, the expansion history of the universe. And I guess they're kind of at odds with each other. Um, so I guess... That leads me into one question for you, which would be, what do you think um, is the future of the expansion of the universe? And do you think, like, people talk about the future big rip. 
the future of the expansion of the universe. You know, what do you think Mm -hmm. is going to happen as uh, the universe progresses billions and billions of years? Would we ever see something like the Big Rip, or is that just complete? Yeah, so uh, a a recent book published during COVID, uh, I talked about what was called Cosmic Queries, and it which (laughs) Cosmic Queries is a spinoff of my podcast. I was a Star Talk podcast, Mm -hmm. and the Cosmic Queries is where our fans simply ask questions sure. right. and um so one of the, we published a book based on the cosmic queries it's called cosmic queries there's an entire chapter on how the universe will end yeah and one of the scenarios is the big rip which terrifies me yeah. <laughs> all right as the expansion continues in 22 billion years which seems like a long time but it's short compared with other what we think is the future history of the universe right? yeah uh, in there we talk about it and there's a whole section on the big rip right. so so follow what's going on here so the universe is expanding and that expansion is accelerating right so there's a point and it, it's accelerating because it is a property of the vacuum and the gravitational force which is trying to stop it mm-hmm. becomes weaker and weaker relative to it right so this is going to own own the shop and in the end days so what's going to happen is everything will expand so thoroughly that all the galaxies of the night sky will expand beyond our horizon then all the stars of our night sky will expand beyond that horizon and then the planets and then it'll start ripping things apart and it gets down to the scale of the atom and then it tries to rip the planck length this is the smallest unit of length that exists in nature So it'll try to rip that, and it can't. So it'll try to stretch that, and it can't. It'll end up ripping it. And we do not know what's on the other side of the rip. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. So what you're saying is we have to find a way to stay alive for the next 22 billion years just to watch it happen. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's a... Not that we'll be able uh, to do anything after the rip happens. It's odd that 22 billion is still a big number. Yeah. But it somehow feels in reach. Because we are 14 billion years old. Right. as a universe. So it feels a little more real than it otherwise would. Yeah, yeah. I, we talked about the equation of state parameter two last episode, I guess, and there's the whole idea with like it being negative one or whatever. If it's less than negative one, then the big rip like is plausible. Do you think, you know, that that's likely based off what we've measured so far? You know, is dark energy constant, I guess? Uh, well, the dark energy is not getting more concentrated. But as the vacuum grows, so does the dark energy component. Uh, so um, I, I think we're good. I mean, yeah, I, I don't see a, uh, that's how we should think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Fair. <laughs> Neil, I was listening to, you're familiar with the podcast, um, Stuff You Should Know, the How Stuff Works podcast. Or are you familiar yes, with that? Yes, I am, suite? but I'm trying yeah. to remember why. Uh well, so I mean, it's I mean, aside from Star Talk, uh, it's my favorite podcast. Um but they had an episode that I listened to just recently where they were talking about uh the METIs or like trying to contact extraterrestrial life. And I heard in that um that, you know, back when Carl Sagan was, you know, in the works of creating the golden record or like kind of in that team thinking about that. I heard that you may have been curious to be a part of that, uh, but you were too young. Is this, is this true? 
Oh, sure. I mean, we all wanted to be a part of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the Golden Record, I think I was, how old was I? When Voyager uh, left the solar system just a few years ago. So, yeah, I was there for the whole life cycle Yeah. Well. of the space probe. Yeah. It, and it just didn't occur to me to, um, yeah, because it, it, it flew by Neptune in 1977. And that's when, no, sorry. It flew by Neptune. It was launched in 1977. It flew by Neptune in 1990, and that's when Carl Sagan wrote his pale blue dot. Yeah, which is what Uranus, Neptune looks like from Pluto if you're just coming upon the solar system for the very first time. Yeah, I'm. I was curious about. Um, so a lot of the golden record is encoded kind of in binary. Is that correct? <laughs> it's. Uh, yes, it is. They, yeah. they try to. They tried to put it in a in a format that we're pretty sure aliens would figure out, yeah. but there, there's some of it might have been a stretch because there's a Voyager. It's the golden record. Right. It's, it's like their instructions how to make a record player. All right, <laughs> and that's, so it's a little it's a little weird. Yeah, uh, feels a little pretend, uh, provincial on first pass. But yeah. I applaud the effort. Yeah, because the Voyager was never going to come back. It was not going to come back. Put something on there that somebody might care about. Um, as a um, as a gift to them for picking yeah. up the yeah the, they'll either the find asteroid. the golden record or they'll find the roadster that's floating around up there <laughs> we'll see which one happens first yeah um I mean well because part of that podcast too was saying like there was the whole like, the Tesla roadster yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um there was the whole argument like is it a good idea to be trying to contact aliens because some people think it's dangerous so I, I guess I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, well, they, most of people's thoughts come from movies. Right. And in the movies, the aliens are always evil and <laughs> when they come upon us. And I would say that these apocalyptic scenarios are based on not – they're not actually based on how we think the aliens will behave. Right. right. They're based on how we know we would behave in those situations. Mm. Dang, Yeah. The history of human exploration, if you are more advanced than the culture you come upon, that's, that's it. Yeah. That's, it's, give up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Be, be ready to become their pets. Yeah. Yeah. No, mm -hmm. I mean, I guess I always thought, like, I think about the Kardashev scale because if there was a, a alien race, I guess, that was so advanced to be able to travel intergalactically and come upon our civilization and stuff. I guess, like, would they even really have any use for us? Aside from <laughs> right. you saying pets. Right, That's we'd be terrifying. completely backwards yeah. on their scale. And I comment that, you know, if you're really an advanced, intellectually advanced species, other species don't interest you. You're onto yeah. other right. problems. Yeah. And so I find it odd that people are sure that aliens are eviscerating our cows and painting crop circles and showing up uh, when there's no video cameras, because <laughs> they wouldn't be interested. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I are you interested in worms? You know, maybe you are, <laughs> but not. You know, you don't contemplate what it worm contemplates. Right. Yeah. Ever. Ever. So AJ brought up the the Kardashev scale. So I'm curious. Do you think humans uh, will ever have the capacity to increase our place on that scale? To like harness the yeah, energy I of a star. Yeah, I think the level one. Is in is within reach. Uh, level two has gathered the 
uh, all the energy reserves of the earth. Right. And right now we can redirect rivers. We can build a dam. We can, that's kind of it. Right. When it yeah. comes, when it comes time to the earthquake, the tornado, the tsunami, the, we are helpless. We run for the hills when those happen. We buy after we buy water and toilet paper. Right. <laughs> so, so I don't, if I, what are we? We're probably Kardashev level zero. Yeah. Yeah. Because we don't even control our, we're still using fossil fuels. Right. That's embarrassing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that, well, so we talked many episodes ago about nuclear fusion. Do you see that being then like the I think whatever landing resistance page? people had to it, yeah. they're going to have to overcome it. Yeah. Right. Because nuclear fusion, especially with the recent ignition facility at Lawrence, L- yeah. Lawrence, Lawrence Livermore. Livermore, thank you. Lawrence yep. Livermore, that, where they recently hit ignition. Uh, that that's a very good fact. Right. Yep. And I'm a little worried about how quickly it'll come online only because every one of the, was it 39 lasers? Yeah. Every one of those lasers, lasers itself would be the most powerful laser in the world. Yeah. yeah. We talked about and that. We just compi- our... compiled them all into one spot, one small spot. And yeah. there's some pretty big asterisks on them like, saying that they put, got more energy out than what they put in. Because right. It takes right. a lot of energy to fire these lasers in the first place. Yeah. Specifically on that, that's, uh, fuel right. cell, but still, and obviously, a big, interesting technology for the future. Yeah. That hopefully, mm-hmm. will drive our energy. Yeah. Production. Yeah, and uh, there's no problem of nuclear waste right. because it's hydrogen fusion, and any, any exhaust you see in a, um, for example, in a rocket launch, uh, typically the large tanks, not the solid rocket boosters, but the large tanks have two separated tanks. One hydrogen one oxygen mm-hmm. and it merges them together to create an exothermic reaction yep. and guess what the byproduct is Heat. water 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 well exothermic i thought that's yeah. what i was getting at but yeah water. water um well okay so say say we get to this uh, like level one on the carter chef scale say we achieve commercial nuclear fusion say we can even bring it like onto spaceships if we wanted to is that like what is the utopian level of space travel for us like how what what, what is the perfect space travel to go intergalactic what does that look like to you no nobody's going intergalactic it takes too long not even going interstellar it takes too long it takes 50 to 100,000 years to go interstellar on the fastest ship ever launched right so 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 no. you're saying introduce some wormholes is what I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah, you need wormholes. You need yeah. some other understanding of the fabric of space and time. Yeah. And then exploit that understanding that gets you to the to the uh, to where you're headed. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, we talked about this last episode with ex- with the expansion of the universe. It just feels incredible that such distances can exist between us and the nearest you know galactic neighbor. Yeah, and it's. Uh, most people never have that understanding. Right. And it's sad because uh, the relative sizes of things really matters. Yeah. Okay. Well, now I have to ask you, like, <sighs> is the universe, like, infinite, you know? And I, I know you've talked about the, multi- the multiverse theories on other podcasts and stuff like that, but if, I'm, if there can't be nothing and there has to be something, then, like, what does that even who imply for the size of the universe? Yeah, like, what would be outside no, of no, the... No, who said that? Who said there can't be nothing? I no, I, I did, <laughs> I did. You're, you're presuming it, right? I mean, I cause right. I can't, I can't. Um, it's not true that there can't be that. nothing. Just it's just, just hard to fathom out there. I guess. Yeah, 
So, so what is so? So, could the universe be infinite then, if there can be nothing? It can, it could be, but still be contained in a finite volume. For example, on Earth, if I say you're in Iowa now, go west and right. you start walking, and I'll say, give me a call when you fall off the edge. Yeah. <laughs> But there, there is no edge of the earth. Right. right. Yet you could walk forever. Right. So that would be like an infinite universe, but contained in a finite space. Right. So let's say somehow we could reach the edge of the universe. What would we? What would we see? What would we observe? Well, there's the horizon, which is when we give the extent of the universe. That's what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. The 14 billion year old horizon, where you look out in space, you see galaxies being born. You see early light that's not yet starlight, and it's all um, indicated as being near the edge of the observable universe. Yeah. But if you walk towards the edge of the observable universe, your observable edge will get farther and farther away. Yeah. So the question is, how much beyond the observable edge of the universe does the universe go? Yeah, because when a ship out at sea, right, right. and you can see thirteen miles to the horizon, mm-hmm. if you then then you finally hit land, you say, "Hmm, the edge of my horizon before was not the edge of the ocean." Yeah, the edge of the ocean is far, much farther away than my own personal horizon. So we don't know how much farther out the universe goes beyond our horizon. I guess it makes me think like, how do we know that the properties of the universe and uh, the way that we think about matter and energy is constant outside of that observable universe, you know? Well, sure. And there's how do we know it's constant to the edge of the universe? Yeah. Th- these are major efforts that people invest testing the 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 constancy of the universal constants. Yeah. Are they constant in space, in time, in, uh, you know, just location? So... Now, when we st- step out of our universe, well, as long as you can get to it, it's in our universe. I guess that's how I'm thinking about it. And everything in our universe, evidence shows, would be subject to the same laws of physics. Yeah. So I'm so, not worried about it if you went towards the horizon and then kept walking. Yeah. Right? I wouldn't worry about it. But could there be parallel universes that behave differently? I think on yes. one, yeah, because on yes, one... Th- with slightly different laws of physics, most most definitely. Yeah. I think on one... Um, show you mentioned that you know perhaps an explanation for dark matter would that it would be you know a parallel universe acting on our own universe yeah with much more gravity than ours and, we, right. and the gravity leakage from that universe to this one yeah that could be it but there, pl- there are plenty of competing ideas so yeah. um, one thing I guess I'm curious about is kind of just the overarching relationship between mathematics and the physical world yeah, that's what and I was how, say too, yeah. how we're able to, I guess, take it's all these... It's a remarkable fact, isn't it? Yeah. Right. Just how we're able it's to remarkable. take all these physical uh, observations we're making and turn them into a, and just an equation. Yeah, it's 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 amazing. I mean, I, I celebrate that fact almost daily. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you maybe, do you think that there will ever be like, maybe there's something that we can't explain mathematically or... Like, is mathematics inherent to the universe, or is it something that we've kind of created to help us understand its nature? It's a, it's a more perfectly worded question. Yeah. So, before you overthink the connection, yeah. consider that mathematics 
is a perfectly logical means of organizing information. Okay. It's perfectly logical. All right. We have the universe. If the universe follows predictable laws of physics, then there it is. If they're predictable, then what happens here on Earth also happens in the heavens. Right. And yeah. so you've got extraordinary power of deduction for that being the case. But the point is, all the fact that math can be applied to the universe s simply says that they're both logical systems. Yeah, that the universe and, and mathematics the mathematics is the symbolic representation of a physical logical system. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that makes sense because the one that equation that was tripping me up last week when I was researching stuff was the Friedman equation because when we talk about like the cosmological constant and stuff like there, it's hard not to feel like sometimes we're just throwing numbers in to match observations, but I guess that's the whole point is to match our observations and create a logical explanation for a logical system. Correct. And a proper theory will have... Um, an understanding of what we already know and be able to predict things that we don't yet know. Right. Yeah. If a theory just stops at what you know, it's not useful. Right. Mm. Yeah. Can we talk about black holes for a second? Mm-hmm. Because in a, in a long ago episode, um, we talked about Einstein's theory of the black holes and the white holes. And I guess to me, that just seemed like the most bizarre explanation to anything. What, how would you, you know, describe that to somebody who's never heard that theory before? I would say, I would ask, it depends on how much math they knew. If, if they knew what the square root of nine is, I'd say, what's the square root of nine? And they'd say three. <laughs> All right. And then I'd say, what's the square root of minus nine? And only if they know enough math will they say 3i. Right, right. But otherwise, they'll think about it, and they'll say negative 3, and I say, no, that gives you plus 9. Okay? Yeah. Sorry, what's the square root of negative 9? Yeah. No, no. Yeah. I said, I yeah, you said, right. said it right. You said it right. Yeah, the point is, the equations for black holes have two solutions. Right. And one of the equations relevant to a black hole has two solutions. One of them, everything gets sucked in. The other one, everything gets spewed out. Yeah. So... The, the spewing out version of this we called um, a white hole, and the one that absorbed everything we called a black hole. We look in the universe, we find only evidence for black holes, not evidence for white holes. Yeah. So the math can do more things than the physical universe can do. Right. Because it's not beholden to the laws of physics. Right. So there's there's a relationship, but not necessarily, they aren't necessarily like intertwined, I guess, is what you're Correct. Saying. Okay. Right. Yeah. The urge to think so is strong, but they're not. Right. Yeah. I mean, because in some of the equations, uh, when we introduce certain variables around black holes, it becomes infinite. And so then it's like, well, how do we have this unifying theory of gravity where it's like marrying gravity with quantum mechanics? And do you think that we Correct. have the capacity to um, deepen our understanding enough to say, okay, well, black holes are wormholes, here's how we can prop it open, and here's how we're going to make them to travel in the universe. Problem is, we don't... Some can work on paper, but if you don't have the technology to back it up, right. just yeah. go home. Yeah. <laughs> they, they actually work in lockstep. I was curious, 
maybe what you think the importance is of going back to the moon and maybe further onto Mars. Oh yeah. Yeah. Just kind of why these things, yeah, are, why it's still important to explore. I don't space. make those judgments. Right. I don't tell other people what they should think is important. Yeah. Okay. I don't, I just don't do that. Sure. But what I can say is exploration in the history of the world has always benefited civilization. Mm-hmm. You're, you're learning parts about your world that you never knew. So I, to say, let's not explore space because we have problems here on earth. The only analogy I can think of is you're in a cave and you're the, the young whippersnapper and you peeked out the cave door and you saw mountains and valleys and hills and fruit on vines and things. And you go to the cave elders and say, we want to explore outside the cave door. And the cave, um, the wise... Um, yeah, elders, the cave elders. Uh, elders, they say, no, we have problems here in the cave first. Right. We have to solve those first. Then you can go outside the front door. That's what you sound like to me. Yeah. Right. Not you, but when one's one who says this. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that makes sense. I they're think rare earth elements on earth and space, they're common. Now, they're not rare because there isn't much of it. They're rare because the, the geopolitics of it um, magnify the challenges of it. Uh, by the way, it's a matter of proportion, right? So if we were spending 80% of the federal budget putting people into space, and 20% feeding them and only badly, then I'd say reallocate that. Right. But NASA's budget is four-tenths of one penny (laughs) on a tax dollar. Joke. Yeah. So 99.6% of all the other money is going to everything else this country does. Yeah. So you're going to say, well, let's go in that 0.4% and 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 let's take that and that'll fix these problems? Really? (laughs) You think so? There were homeless people and poor people before anybody ever said the word rocket. Yeah. Yeah. That's frustrating, too, because people pass judgment onto NASA and say, well, they haven't been able to have like X and X success, which, I mean, already in itself is not true because they have like just in terms of all the testing that they do and everything, everything that they do is a success. You know, the first step to success is failure. So like they learn through um, their, their entire process of development but still like to say that they're not doing enough so we shouldn't give them more money. That's kind of the reverse saying. It's like if they had more money, they probably could do more. I would say that what they do do is so visible that people think their budget is much higher. Right. Because yeah, I've asked yeah. how much you think Definitely budget seems. NASA gets. Is it 10%, 15%, yeah. 20%, 5%? No, it's one half of one penny. Yeah. I want to start a movement where all agencies get the budget that people think they're getting. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Would you NASA would do very well in that contest. <laughs> Definitely would. Yeah. Do you think that the privatization then is or, or not maybe not privatization, but commercialization of space travel is also, you know, helping NASA now that they have multiple companies out there uh competing to develop new technologies for them so they can It should have been it should have happening should have been happening decades ago. Yeah. Long overdue. Plus this whole idea that private enterprise is involved, they've been involved from the beginning. Yeah. The difference is it's your tax money that paid for the rocket that that um, Grumman built, sure. okay? Or Grumman built the, um, the the lunar excursion module. To this day, in Bethpage, Long Island, which was the headquarters of Grumman Aerospace during the Apollo era, people stand tall and 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 walk proud 
because they had an aunt or an uncle, somebody yeah. who worked yeah. on that project back then. It didn't say Grumman on the side of the ship because we paid for it, taxpayers. Right. But they built it. Right. Not, not the whole thing, just the – but different companies might have had their names on it like in NASCAR, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so now NASA is not building it or – giving instructions to build it the private companies are doing it all on their own like you said they're innovating on their own and i would bet you the first time nasa says it's time to go to mars they're going to knock on elon's door and say elon we need a rocket we don't have a oh, here's one for you there <laughs> yeah. it is sure yeah we were already working on one yeah no it's it's perfect we talked about that a little bit a couple episodes ago and i think that's cool that we have you know it's not not only just tesla it's like Virgin Galactic Earth. is working on stuff, or uh, Blue Origin, I guess, from um, who's that? Bezos, Jeff Bezos. Yeah, yeah. Bezos. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It doesn't matter. The billionaire boys' space race—that's what it is. I, by the way, I'd rather they spend their billions on this than on yachts, yeah, <laughs> right, or some other extravagance. At least they're spending their money in places that require sci-tech innovation to make it work, so that there's some leftovers for society right. leftovers cheapens it so there's some benefit to society because of the research being done for this to happen if they all just wanted to get the biggest yacht there's nothing for the rest of us i yeah. think like one of the last times we saw this amount this amount of innovation in i guess space and exploration technology like this was the cold war era or just like while we're at war and we obviously develop a lot of yep. military technology yep. which has yep. a relationship to space exploration but now I think it's a good thing that these big companies are kind of competing against each other because it drives. Yeah. Yeah. Sputnik. Sputnik was launched inside of the hollowed shell of an intercontinental ballistic missile. Yeah. Yeah. The V two. The V two rocket. rocket? I believe. V two first. First. Yep. First um, rocket used in warfare, basically. Yeah. It's a rocket because it because it didn't use the aerodynamics of the atmosphere to fly. And it exited the atmosphere and then mm. fell back in. And even Werner von Braun, who developed the V2, everyone knew that if we're going to go into space, it's going to be something like that. Yeah. And so when asked, tell us, was it a success? He said, yes, the V2 was a complete success. It just landed on the wrong planet. <laughs> That's, That's funny. funny. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, cool. Well, we've got, I think, just a couple more minutes with you. So we'll move to our final thoughts here. Um, mm-hmm. And you can tell me if this is a bad question, but I, it's it's a hard one to phrase. So I'll just go for it, and I'll say that when you look at life, you know, this is relating, and I'm trying to relate this to Starry Messenger a little bit. But looking in part, or looking at life from a cosmic perspective, so like dragging that politician to the moon and telling him to look back at the Earth, right? That can be, you know, incredibly overwhelming for others or for, for some people. So like, what? would you tell those people and why is it important to have this uh perspective in the first place again i don't tell people what they should think is important right i would say if you think about the world this way such as a schoolroom globe with color-coded countries and only in my later years did i realize maybe they were trying to teach me who my enemies were and who my friends were by color-coding the countries that are adjacent to other countries this is an indoctrination that happens very early in school. Mm-hmm. And only when you go out into space do you say, wait, there's oceans and land, clouds. Earth looks different. 
from space. So if you are curious if Earth can look any other way beyond just a color-coded countries, then space might be just the thing you eat and you need or want. Yeah. And look at these other comments that people have said about being in space. So I can't imagine someone would decline an opportunity to yeah. see Earth from space. Yeah. Unless they have altitude sickness or something. But I can't imagine that. Yeah. So I would say if you want to it, it's an if statement. If you want to broaden your understanding of our relationship to each other, to Earth and to the universe, a trip to space can address that. Sure. Yeah. I think uh, one quote that I saw recently, and I don't remember exactly who, I know it was a, a pilot of the space shuttle program. He said, uh, just when he looked down, it just looked like a big green and blue marble. There's no country lines and no, he said that too. There's right. no country line, no border lines and things like right. that. And by the way, that's just from low Earth orbit. Yeah. The space shuttle and space station astronauts are about a centimeter above the surface of a schoolroom globe. That's how far away they are from Earth. Hmm. So at no time do they see the entire globe of the Earth. Right. For that, you got to go to the moon. And so that they, they have what's called the overview effect. But then after the overview effect, there's the even higher effect, which I would just call a cosmic perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think about the pale blue dot. That's kind of that when we turned Voyager 1 back on Earth, that's that whole feeling that you get. It's like, wow, I'm like a, a half of a pixel. Yeah, I'm a half of a pixel or I'm, I'm, I'm sitting on a rock that's half of a pixel when you look at it from this point in space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And can you take up arms against other humans in the face of that knowledge yeah. or enlightenment yeah, or wisdom? Because it's like it, just being alive here where we are, you think about every miracle that Earth allows that gives us the chance just to develop and grow and be alive at this point in the universe's lifetime. You know, that's right. a miracle. And it's I all think, just that one pixel, right? Yeah. I think the price tag on like a flight, a low Earth orbit flight was, I can't remember the exact number, but I think around like $500,000. Sure. And I just wonder if that drives people enough to get that perspective. Like would $500,000, would you pay that much to get that perspective? Yeah. Um, no, so I think the cost of this, uh, is it that low? I thought it was higher than that. It, but um, as the price drops, more and more people will be able to afford it. Right. So yeah. that's that's a fundamental reality. When when cell phones first came out, only rich people had them, and they were shoulder-mounted bricks, all right, as they got smaller and cheaper and better and faster. Now, everybody has a cell phone who wants a, a smartphone who wants a smartphone. So... The question is, can we commoditize space travel? If we right. can't, and it stays expensive, beyond anybody's efforts to rectify that, then another way to do it is you have a lottery. Yeah. I, I spent a dollar. If 200 million people spent a dollar on a lottery, um, 200 million, then that's $200 million. Right. Um, you could send how many people? 10 people for that? Right, yeah. two hundred thousand, whatever was the number you said that it cost. Yeah, right. And I, I would spend a dollar a week for that chance. Um, yeah, and that um, way the people that go up didn't have to spend that money because they won the lottery. But the money was collected to make it happen. Right. On Virgin Galactic's website, it says the the total flight cost is four hundred fifty thousand dollars. That's yeah for a person. Yep, yeah, for, for one, one person, I think. Okay. Uh, okay. Wait. Wait. 
wait. Um, is this the stuff they're doing now, or they're promising this in the future? The, the reason why I ask is, if it's what they're doing now, they're not going into orbit. Yeah, no, Virgin Galactic, like, doesn't quite get outside. Um, what's the line called, Neil, that they say 100 kilometers? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. it's the Carmen line. The Carmen the, line, yep. The, the uh, Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin do not go into orbit. Yeah. You, it, they just go up, and then you fall back to Earth, and you get a, some minutes of weightlessness. Yeah. And So you have to be able to take the six Gs. It looks like this is what they're doing now. Um, from what I'm able to gather. Yeah, yeah so that's not that. orbit. So the prices I'm describing are orbit. Right, yeah. right, right, right. An orbital spacecraft is a completely differently designed spacecraft because right. it has to re-enter Earth's atmosphere and not burn up. Sure. Yeah. The other spacecraft have no such requirements. Right. So that being said, it could still be a fun joyride yeah. to, do, to, to do these suborbital loops. Yeah. Um, and sure, but as an astrophysicist, I want to go somewhere. I, yeah. want, I don't want to just boldly go where hundreds have gone before. Sure. <laughs> Send me to a destination, like the moon, Mars, beyond. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So just to wrap up here, Neil, um, again, we're really thankful for you coming on the show, of course. And I think um, it'd be nice to hear you just quickly. You've told before on uh, shows the story of you meeting Carl Sagan when you were, uh, you know, touring colleges and his... Um, you know, hospitality towards you and how that has kind of shaped how you treat other people. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I was 17 in high school applying to colleges and I applied to five or six colleges maybe. And uh, so of those that accepted me, I'm still thinking, well, which one should I go to? And by the way, I was interested in the universe from very early, from like age nine. So my application to college was dripping with the universe unknown to me cornell was one of my options the admissions office sent my application to carl sagan then a professor at cornell for his reaction to it and his reaction was he sent me a personal letter wow. saying i see you're interested in the universe why don't you come by and visit i can show you the lab and help you make a decision it was like what 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 <laughs> just like now he hadn't done cosmos yet but he was already famous he was already on the tonight show and the written best-selling books and this sort of thing and so uh, i replied verification from my parents yeah this is legit right and so then i went up and visited cornell he met me out front we went into the lab and he reached behind him and pulled out one of his books but no look reach grabbed a book <laughs> sitting behind him and it was a book that he wrote I thought that was badass. <laughs> I signed it to me. I still have it. So then, you know, the day it started snowing later in the day, and I'm headed back to the bus station because sure. Ithaca, New York, is a bus ride from New York. It's like a five-hour bus ride. And he said, you know, if the bus doesn't come through, here's my home number. Uh, call, spend the night with my family. And it was like, whoa. Yeah. How, wow. and, I, and I remember thinking to myself, if I am ever remotely as famous as Carl Sagan, I would treat students with ambitions no differently than how he treated me right yeah okay i for then I, I was on a mission not to be famous but to be that humble in the face of fame yeah right mm -hmm. and that and that uh, overall uh sensitivity and concern and interest in the career plight of others who are find themselves so i joke i say 
uh, I'd be on the phone and a student shows up at my office door and I say, Barack, I got to call you back. I got a student here. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I would probably finish the conversation with Barack Obama, but, <laughs> to, to, but the sentiment is real. Right. Yeah. That the priorities would be established in that way. Yeah. And I think AJ and I are very grateful to have seen that hospitality firsthand. I mean, having you on here has been a, I think a real great honor to us. And oh yeah, yeah, it was it was it was not a thing. Don't worry. I mean, your your, your overture letter was way more effusive than was necessary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I don't I I'll tell this story even though it's like kind of embarrassing. I, I'm sure. I mean, I maybe you don't know this, which would be great. Um, but I'm about to tell you anyway. I think I sent you. Um, you know, on your website, you have like a media release and then you have an interview request and then you have like a show appearance uh, form. I filled all those out. <laughs> I think I got you on Instagram as well. I think I might have messaged Star Talk on Instagram as well. And it was this great call to the universe for Neil deGrasse Tyson to come to the show. And it was all the same thing. I just copy and pasted it. And I was like, <laughs> I just, you know, I'm going to cross my fingers and hope one of these land. Uh, <laughs> but I remember Judd and I were like, I texted him when he was in the middle of physics and I, he just wanted to bolt out of there because he didn't believe me when I said that, oh yeah, so I just got an email um, from Neil deGrasse Tyson's assistant and he's going to, you know, he's going to come on the show. No big, no big deal. <laughs> and then I was calling my parents and they were like, well, this is the coolest thing ever. And it, it, it really is. It really is. So and just yeah. for what it's worth, I don't use social media. The, it, maybe others do, but I don't use that as my means of engaging people. Yeah, right. And, right. Uh, I just don't, you know. I'm still maybe I'm old school. Email yeah. is like old school. I know. Yeah, it's like how your how your parents communicated with each other. Yeah, but uh, yeah. So that the the medium was via email. Yes. Yeah. 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 No. Uh, uh, I mean, By it's... The way, there is some triaging. If you guys were just, you know, plumb crazy, no, I would, <laughs> you you'd still be there, right? Wondering sure. where I am in the ether. Yeah. But, yeah. No, but we good. Awesome. Okay, cool. So now I, you're saying is what I can do is I can go to Amazon to the merchandise store and I can pick up the shirt that says Neil deGrasse Tyson is my homeboy, right? <laughs> That's right. And okay. if it's authentic merchandise, yep. then the proceeds that would come... So the designer of it gets gets a cut of that, of course. Yep. And then the, the part that... The cut that Amazon sends to me, I gather at the end of the year and I give to uh, educational not-for-profits oh, cool. that are nice. trying to educate and boost science literacy in the world. Yeah. So. Well, that's yeah. what we like to hear. Yeah. Hopefully these were, these were those shirts. Yeah. Well, we went okay. straight, we <laughs> went straight to your store on Amazon. We were like, okay, well, let's pick one up. And excellent. what, uh, another funny point was like, we, so I think, um, your assistant reached out to us in, uh, maybe March, pr probably March at the, at that time, right before we had left for spring break. And we were like, okay, we can keep it a secret that Neil deGrasse Tyson is coming on our podcast, whatever. And a couple of weeks go by and we're like, it's really enticing just to tell basically everybody that know <laughs> or everybody we know that we're about to talk to the Neil deGrasse Tyson. Well, I hope I served the interests and needs of not only your podcast, but the, your audience and your sure. anticipated audience. Yeah, no, definitely. We got through many of mm -hmm. the fan requested uh, questions. And so mm -hmm. this will really help us, you know, continue to... Yeah, it's been yeah, reach more really people, inspiring. Talk to people about it's been this. an inspiring experience. So thank you very much. Yeah. All right. All right, guys. Keep at it. Yeah. Thank you, you so much. Okay. Have a great rest of your day. You got it. Thanks. Bye. Bye, -bye. Well, 
that was our special interview with Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, <laughs> finally in the books. So that's pretty cool. It's amazing. Judd, how do you feel after that? I feel enlightened. Yeah, I feel enlightened too, man. It. I, we talked about some things that now I want to talk about in subsequent episodes. Yeah, I know. I think we got a lot of new ideas and, and lots to talk about. And I'm going to be piecing through this footage for the rest of the summer, essentially. <laughs> so prepare uh, to look at our Instagram feed or YouTube feed, TikTok, whatever, and just see pools of Neil deGrasse Tyson's face. And new episodes. Everywhere. New episodes. I think we're, we're pumped and we're excited to, to get them out. So. Yeah. Bye-bye now. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't say it like that. I we can't. To... <clears throat> okay, bye. How do you end a podcast episode after...